Cube of Fangirl is a web series and podcast created by Temple of Geek. At the core of the project is the importance of telling the stories of women who have found inspiration, growth, and power through fandom. My name is Jenna Wren, and I'm the host of Part of the Fangirl podcast. This podcast sets out to challenge the stereotype of what a fangirl is. By featuring several inspiring women and telling the stories of how their diverse and fascinating fandoms have participated in enriching their lives, both professionally and personally. Today we have with us Leanne Krasik, creator of Eisner and Ringo-nominated webtoon Let's Play. Leanne has the interesting circumstance of being both a fangirl, but also having tons of her own fans. Her webtoon Let's Play has a devoted readership with more than 677 million views, 4.8 million subscribers, and is the second most read title at webtoon. I'm very excited to have you here with me today, Leanne. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Could you please just introduce yourself and let our audience know a little bit about you? Uh, yeah, I'm Leanne Krasik. I'm here with Luna, my cat, so you might hear her meowing in the background. <laughs> um, I am, like uh, like you said in the introduction, I am a Webtoon comic creator. I created the title Let's Play and have expanded my horizons to other titles that are currently work in progress and also working on a game right now uh, called Everdate, which is a visual novel slash CCG dating game for Let's Play. Ooh, so it's connected to the Let's Play comic. Yes, it is based on the characters and the world and the storyline. Very interesting. So we always like to ask our guests, what is your definition of a fangirl? My definition of a fangirl is somebody who is, well, I mean, if you break it down, there's there's obviously a difference, like, what's the difference between just a fan and a fangirl? And I think fangirls are often big fans of, like, romance, wholesome storylines, things that allow them to play with, like, ships, stuff like that. And it's not, I think it's, I think it's a wonderful thing personally. And uh, I definitely have been a fangirl once or twice in my, in my day. (laughs) Has your definition of that changed over time from when you were younger to now? I don't think it's changed. I think I just kind of understood that it kind of better understand what a fangirl is. You know, it's just this wholesome love that people get very passionate about and it's, It involves a lot of squeeing also, (laughs) which I do myself. Yes, it does. Um, And, you know, just trying to decipher the the difference between the different fan types, I guess, is is, as I've gotten older and more into the community, that's become clearer to me. Right. I think as you get older, too, you are more aware of the things that you really like and you're less preoccupied with what other people think, (laughs) you know, when you're... Yeah, I think when you're young, it's a little hard. Yeah, absolutely. Because like when I was younger, I used to be a fan of Ewoks. And I'm talking like when I was young. And when I got older, people are like, Ewoks are stupid. You know, they're like, <laughs> they're silly or whatever. And it was like, well, but I like the Ewoks. So I can't just enjoy what I, you know. So it's like, I think that the older I've gotten, it's like, I've just learned to just be, just to love what I love and not care what other fans of the of the same you know, storyline or what have you think. Right. It's embracing that, that part of you without worrying. You don't need the validation of others to confirm your, your fandom. You just kind of touched on this a little bit, but growing up, what were some things that you were really passionate about? I was really passionate on Sailor Moon because it was like, you know, I think probably the first real anime that really sunk in as being like its own genre to me. Like I watched 
you know, Voltron and other stuff that was animated overseas, but it aired in the U.S. But I think like the anime that really just like settled in for me was Akira. And I saw that when I was around 13 years old and it aired on cable television in the U.S. for the first time. And I thought that was really awesome. And then I learned about Sailor Moon and I went from being a fan to a fangirl when I started looking online. And this is the early days of the internet to find when I learned it was a manga also and not just an anime. And so like the American airing of the anime only was like first or second season, but I wanted to know more about the story. So then I, I became a fangirl when I actually got online and started tracking that stuff down. Right. Getting more into the source material and the background. Yeah. I feel like being a fan, it's like you're passive, like you passively consume the media. But when you're like a fangirl or fanboy, you're like actively looking for it. You know, it's funny, um, a few people that I've talked to on this podcast all mention Sailor Moon as one of the <laughs> one of the big cultural pieces that shaped their vision of being a fangirl. Well, yeah, I mean, it was like the first shoujo, technically, but it's like, well, I think it's also kind of crosses the line of, of shonen, but it's a female protagonist. So it's, and it's like kind of the first of its kind that really was aired in the US because at the same time, Dragon Ball Z was going on and Dragon Ball and stuff like that. So it was wonderful being a young girl seeing Sailor Moon as the hero, which is also a young girl. She had legs for days, you know, which is hard to relate to, but it was great seeing this like wholesome camaraderie with, with her friends and just like overcoming the evil. And it was such a wonderful media to have for young girls everywhere. You know, it still really holds up today too, I have to say. Good. Has fandom played a role in shaping your professional life? Yeah, I would say so. Definitely. Because the thing about fandom is, well, obviously the more fans you have, the more you can make it a career, a standalone career in terms of finances and stuff. But also it's been a learning experience for me because I've never had a, a work that's had this kind of readership before. So it's been kind of a trial by fire out of the frying pan into the fire experience in some cases. But, you know, there's also concerns with parasocial relationships and stuff like that. So having to learn, like, learn as a creator, like, it's important that you set boundaries because if you just put yourself out there, it's really hard to get that back. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's been, it's definitely been a very interesting learning experience for me. You started out in IT, correct? Correct. How did you wind up getting into this sort of comic creative genre? I've always been creative. I've been an artist for a long time. I haven't taken a class since I was like 12, but I always drew because my mom was very creative. So it was always encouraged growing up. Originally, I was a musician and then my health went south and I wasn't able to continue to be a professional musician. So I switched careers to something that was more manageable, which was IT. So IT was really just my... Like, I can understand programming and computers really well, and I was always into it also for, like, nerdy geek stuff, but it wasn't really my passion. Creative was always my passion, and so after working IT and getting my career established, finances established, I was like, I need a creative outlet. And so I started getting into doing art and decided I wanted to do it digitally and bought my first tablet slash, it was one of those laptops that you spun the uh, screen around so you could draw on it. And that was my first digital experience. And then it just kind of kind of took off from there. That's amazing. How did you come up with the idea for your comic that is now extremely popular on Webtoon? Let's play. I originally wanted to do a fantasy story, 
as my breakout comic, but after reading reports and talking to other people, it turns out that breaking out in fantasy is a lot harder. So I decided I would, I love, I love reading romance stories, manga and stuff like that. So I was like, well, I mean, I love fantasy, but I also love romance. So I'll do my first breakout comic as a romance. And I played with a multitude of ideas and I decided that when I came up with the concept, like the internet didn't really seem to understand how to handle the rise of influencers at the time. And I was like, I feel like nobody's really writing about this and making a story out of it. Let's try that. And kind of built off of that premise. Right. Because you have this YouTube personality in your beginning of your comic um, starting out. And I think that that's very unique when I read that as well. Mm -hmm. You still don't really see that a ton. Mm -hmm. So I think that sticks out. It's one of the overall arcing storylines. And, you know, one of the premises is of Sam, who's the main character. She's, uh, you know, she's a developer, works for her father's company as her nine to five, but she also wants to be a game developer. And one of the overarching questions of the story is, do you stick with a job that you know is stable or do you go for your passion project, which could easily fail? The premise of the YouTuber, in this case, ViewTuber, dealing with backlash from fangirls, fanboys, and also like hype backlash. The next season, we're going to see more from Marshall's standpoint because not wanting to spoil the story is getting more into Sam's game. So players are, or fans are seeing that. So what is going to be their reaction to that overall? And it's, it's always ups and downs. Now, when you mentioned Sam, how she works her nine to five job, but she has this dream for something more. Mm -hmm. Do you relate to that? Was that based on your own experiences? Yeah, I think to a degree. Absolutely. Because I was working a job that was financially stable and, you know, paid the bills and all that sort of thing, but I wasn't passionate about it. And it was really a question of like, you know, I think we're, at least in my case, I was raised, you know, in this capitalist society where your contribution as an adult, or at least that marks you as an adult, is how much money you bring in and how professional or what have you you can be. So it was a question of like, do I leave this stable job and follow a passion, which is making comics that I have no experience in and may fail and I have to start all over again? as a IT in another job. So it was really a leap of faith. And I think a lot of people kind of get into that position in their life at some point in time. And it's very difficult for them to make that decision. I would imagine it's definitely something that must be anxiety inducing because you don't know what you're going to step out into. Right. And that's, you know, that was a long, I'm married and my husband was like, I support you. Uh, you supported me through my master's degree. If you want to pursue this, I support you. It was really a question of like, what happens if I fail? And then I was I got to the point where I was anxious about failing so much that I just decided I might succeed. So why am I wasting my energy and imagination on fearing that I might fail and just go for it? That's an amazing way to look at it. Honestly, as a creator, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the what ifs and the what if nobody likes this or what if it doesn't do as well as I think it's going to do. So I think that that's a really great way of looking at things. Right. What is it like being in the position where you yourself are a fangirl, but now you have a work that has fangirls of itself? Um, I think it's easy for me to relate to fangirls of my own time. Well, I mean, to a degree. I'm always very critical of my own work. <laughs> so it's like, if, there are if I have fangirls, I'm like, uh, I guess I feel undeserving of them, I suppose. 
but I can also understand being very passionate and a fan of something. So I can understand when you get to that level where you love something, I can relate to them in that regard. It's this, you know, attachment to something that you feel a resonance with or something along those lines. Yeah. And I, d- I definitely understand it today because, you know, the last three years have kind of been a dumpster fire. Uh, and I think a lot of people have needed something that is in a form of escapism, some feel good, some good dopamine hits, stuff like that. So I can understand people being very passionate about the things they love in this day and age. I think that that is definitely well needed. <laughs> like you said, especially the past three years, it hasn't been exactly the easiest go for society. Exactly. <laughs> is that really what you think Let's Play resonates with audiences for? Is the feel good sort of escapism? Or do you think that there's something else? I do think it's an escapism. I do, like, my main goal with making comics that I updated, you know, weekly was the hope that for 10 minutes a day or 15 or however fast somebody reads, they kind of unplug from just the stressors of their day to day and just have fun, right? And just enjoy it, laugh. I am hoping that my work continues along that line and that people continue to feel as though they can relate to characters. And and I have also been told by a lot of women, at least, is that they wish they had Let's Play when they were younger. Because talking about Sam's growth and maturing from a sheltered young lady to, you know, this woman and just seeing her growth and just the things she struggled with. They're like, that's stuff I struggled with when I was that age. But now that I'm in my 30s, you know, it's like, I wish I had this when I was younger. It's extremely relatable. Yeah. So I'm hoping that it can continue to help support people and make them, even if it's just a little tidbit to help them make wiser decisions or more comfort in their choices in life. I think that would be great. When did you know that Let's Play was going to be so huge? I still don't fully know it, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, it doesn't sink in? No, because the thing that's the kind of a downfall of the digital world is that you don't really, it's just a number on a, on a website, right? It's not, it's hard to really get a scope. If I'm told I have 7 million international readers, that's a number. But if I go into a warehouse and see 7 million books, that's like, whoa, it's, you have a visual, a visual cue of what that is. I can understand where Kishimoto Masashi comes from. And when he said, when he wrapped up Naruto and people asked him if he realized how popular his comic is internationally and he had no idea and I can understand why he would feel that way if I'm honest you almost need something more tangible to wrap your mind around it it doesn't feel as real I guess and even when people say oh it's it's successful it's got this many readers you know that sort of thing it was like it still doesn't really sink in I guess Now, when you attend something like a big convention, I know you have San Diego Comic-Con coming up and New York Comic-Con. Does that help to make it all feel a little more real to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's always wonderful meeting fans. And I think that meeting fans face-to-face has been wonderful because a lot of people come up and say, hey, I love your work and I really appreciate all your work you put into it and just the effort. And I'm sorry if you're going through a hard time and just... And that really is some great positive reinforcement when they always say, you know, in this culture today, you need to go out and touch grass, you know, and it's like that is touching grass and it's great. And when I have, you know, sizable lines, it's very reassuring to see that because it it is, it can be discouraging to go to a signing and nobody shows up. 
And I, I mean, I can relate to, and I feel my heart goes out to any creator who has a signing and no one shows up or very few. In those cases, it's just like, you just have to understand that, you know, maybe people weren't available. Maybe they couldn't find your booth. Maybe they're, you know, it's not that people don't care. It's just maybe for whatever reason, people couldn't make it to see you. And I think that's important for creators to understand. I think as a creator, it's very easy to take things personally. I mean, to an extent with the podcast and with my writing, it's so easy to be, to step aside and say, oh, I don't know if people are actually really going to care about this, but it's more than that. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, there's a saying of your story might be somebody else's survival guide. Like I try to make short articles on my own website just to help other creators. And just talking about a topic that you're passionate about, you may not have millions of views or listens or what have you, but there may be one person that that really has a huge impact on that they listen to that. For me, whether it's 7 million or 7 people, I still think it's worth it because you can make a huge difference in somebody else's life. Definitely worth it. And like you said, it's it's hard to tell with the number on the screen, but does it really matter if it comes down to that one person? In this day and age, things can go viral very quickly. And I think a lot of people, if they come out with content and it doesn't go viral or doesn't become hugely successful in a short period of time, it's very discouraging for them. But you also have to remember that there are some stupid memes out there that are hugely... <laughs> hugely popular. And it's not that it's any testament to the quality of your work. Sometimes what becomes popular is just purely because it's so ridiculous that it become it is popular. So I don't think that there is a quote unquote yardstick that everybody can measure themselves to. And I think that's very important to remember. Oh, definitely. And especially when you're faced with something like an algorithm that you're dealing with, there's I feel like there's no rhyme or reason a lot of the times yeah. to how things take off. You can't necessarily pander to the algorithm because it doesn't always make sense. Yeah. And there's also there's other factors that are involved. There's outside influence. There's inside influence. You know, when you're using someone else's platform, you're basically playing by their rules. And for whatever reason, you know, there might be a platform where you can put your work on that the internal push is not your work. And it's not that it's any, any statement to you. It might be they have internal reasons to push towards another title or another work to get eyes on it instead of yours. So it's there's a lot of factors in play. It's not just like everybody's on the same playing field. It's not that way at all. There's It's more like three-dimensional chess where there's multiple platforms and multiple pieces and coming from different directions. And it's, it's can be a very complicated thing. And I think it's important, like you said, to remember, it's not necessarily about the quality of your work or how talented someone else may be. Yeah. It's really about a lot of these external factors. Yeah. I mean, I know there's people who don't like my work and I'm not arrogant enough to think I'm the one human being to ever exist to write a story that everyone in the world will enjoy because <laughs> you know even Shakespeare has, has critics you know so it's like I, I accept the fact that my story is not for everybody if someone is to write something especially something that's niche it's going to appeal to a smaller audience but that doesn't mean that audience is going to be any less passionate I find that in fandom sometimes the smaller niche audiences are the ones that are the most energetic and yeah. loud and passionate yeah absolutely it's a lot of fun to interact with that yeah are there moments when you feel like you have to separate being a fangirl and your work life? Yeah, absolutely. Because I can fall down that rabbit hole pretty easily of uh, like binging fan like comics that I really enjoy. So it's really like 
one, I need to not binge stuff because I have work that I have to get done. And also the other thing is, is that I don't want other work to influence my writing because I don't want to accidentally plagiarize somebody else's concept or idea. And I'm always like paranoid about that. I don't think it's happened at this point. I mean, there's only so many original ideas and tropes and a scope of a story, but you know, I certainly don't want to, you know, come across an idea and then work it into my story, not realizing it's it was influenced from something else I had recently seen. You're subconsciously pulling from a comic you just read or a show you just watched, something along those lines. Right, exactly. And I think with Let's Play, if there is like tropes, I like to turn them on their heads. I like to make fun of them or poke fun at it in a playful way. And so when something might initially seem to fall under a trope, it turns out it's the exact opposite. But that's purely based off my own fandom of consuming a lot of comics and seeing patterns in storytelling. So you try to change it up a little bit, make it a little different than what's predictable. Yeah, I mean, it's like a meta. Like, I think people who read Let's Play, the most of them are probably already read other titles. And I know a lot of like the joking tropes that I poke fun at. It might come up and people might be like, oh, is this another one of those story elements? And then it's like, oh. She's actually poking fun at it. Oh, okay. You know, it's like a commentary almost. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to working in this industry where you're also a fan of other creators, do you ever feel intimidated? No, I don't think so. And I'm going to say that might be because I think most of my life I've been a woman in a man's world. I was a professional musician. I played tuba, which is male dominated. I worked IT, which is male dominated. And now I'm comics, which is male dominated. So I always feel like, I have every right to be there, but I have to prove myself at the same time. I've met a multitude of comic creators. I met the creator of Deadpool. I've met, you know, I'm not going to go through a grocery list, but I've met a lot of people. And what's been great is I think that they've all been very welcoming of me. And I have very few people I've met where they've, I felt like I had to prove myself to them. And that's been great. Um, I think the cl- comic community, for the most part, is very welcoming, wholesome. And I think everybody wants the others to succeed because we need to learn that it's not a zero-sum game. We all share readers. What's important is getting more readers into comics because who reads my title might read Deadpool or vice versa. It's been it's been a very good community to be a part of. That's amazing. I think seeing creators support other creators is such a nice web, honestly. They're, you're supporting each other. You're giving each other advice. And I think it's a beautiful thing to see. You know, I've asked if I had rivals and I'm like, absolutely not. I, my, I am my biggest rival from, to myself. Like there's other Webtoon creators that we often jump around and had jumped around in the top few spots. And I, I will say, interestingly enough, I do like it better when I wasn't in the number one spot because you do deal with like that hype backlash. It's like that people see you're in a number one spot and they feel like you have to prove to them that you deserve that slot. And so you're more on the defensive. So I don't envy anybody who's in the number one slot. It's not fun. <laughs> Right, you're like defending your role, yeah. <laughs> your throne. Yeah, and like when Let's Play was announced as a live act, when it was optioned for live action, there was that hype backlash again, where people are like, I didn't want to read this story to begin with, but now that it's getting a live action, I guess I'll check it out. And then they read it. They may have liked it or didn't, but they, if they didn't like it, they're going to basically defend their initial statement of why they didn't initially read it. And so it's interesting in like a study in human behavior. I think that us creators, if we stick together, it makes dealing with that so much easier. And I don't really see any other creator as a rival. I want everybody to succeed and do well and be treated fairly because it's really hard work. It is a passion project. 
I think that that's a beautiful way to wrap up our conversation today. I really appreciate you coming to talk to me, Leanne. Yeah. Can you please let our listeners know where they can find you on social media? Yeah. So you can find me under Mongrel Marie, which is M-O-N-G-R-E-L-M-A-R-I-E on all social media. Again, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating to talk to you today. And I hope that I get to see you at New York Comic Con this year. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to wrap up this episode of the Portrait of a Fangirl podcast. We want to thank our guest, Leanne Krasik, and everyone who tuned in today. If you have any questions or comments, hit us up on Instagram and Facebook using the handle Portrait of a Fangirl. You can also find us across all social media and on YouTube as Temple of Geek. If you'd like to check out any other episodes or shows, please visit us at templeofgeek.com.